Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books Network for South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Preeti Ramaprasad, and today I'm so excited to talk to Dr. Suraj Yangde about his new book, Cast Matters, which was published last year by Penguin Random House India. Suraj Yangde is currently a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and is an inaugural postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard Initiative for Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability. He's also India's first Dalit PhD holder from an African university. Suraj is a published author in the field of caste, race, ethnicity studies, and interregional labor migration in the global south. Currently, he's involved in developing a critical theory of Dalit and black studies. Suraj also holds a research position with the Department of African and African American Studies and is a non-resident fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. Finally, he's also a convener of the Dalit Film Festival and the Dalit Literature Festival. Suraj, thank you so much for being with me today. Absolute pleasure, Preeti. Thank you so much uh, for reaching out and for your attention to my work. Uh, As I was telling you, I was a little bit weary of uh, giving my time to podcasts, uh, but, <laughs> but now I'm excited, so let's begin. Great. Uh, so, Suraj, I wonder if you can uh, tell us about yourself. I mean, that's such an essential part of this text and also your methodology, right? Um, uh, also your family history. It, it informs such a great part of this um, text, and it's so compelling and it's just so uh, beautifully written and elaborated upon. So I wonder if you could kind of, you know, you know, give a little bit of a teaser about that for this audience. Sure. Thank you so much for asking that question. Uh, more specifically on the methodological aspects of this, uh, because um, much of the text that is written was written initially in a humanistic tradition. I was highly, highly inspired by the Greek Roman tradition of humanist thought, uh, but also I was inspired by the Africanist as well as the Indian humanist thought, because that's how I found obvious comfort and place into. And also the issues that I deal with, that I live with, that I fight for are so complex and so deep rooted in recovering and reclaiming our humanity that I had to rely on the archives of the existent humanists. And that's why uh, when I wrote this text, uh, this text was uh, having an orientation into that, and it still is. You can see there's a lot of uh, uh, inspirations one can uh, draw, one can infer or delineate through this text. Um, The major part of uh, my story was not meant to be part of this book in its original form. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, um, this is probably many authors who are uh, listening to this podcast uh, might concur that, uh, you know, your ideas get distilled and, uh, you know, changed and ameliorated so many times 
that uh, what is yours doesn't really remain yours. It in fact gets more fashion, and, and you know it's also the uh, the business of publishing uh, because uh, it's not only about selling, but it's also how people conceive ideas, uh, and that was one of the high calls. You know, when I had sent uh, this proposal uh, to the uh, to my, I mean, I've already worked with Penguin before, so they knew I was up to something. Uh, they were they were simply like you've written very difficult for us to understand. Uh, and you just say it simply, and then I wrote simply, and then they say, still, can you say it in more simple terms? And, you know, as an academic trained in, you know, in these many various traditions, I just was a little bit irked by this reaction. Um, and then finally, you know, they had to come to terms with, uh, uh, you know, why don't you, you know, they say, okay, let's sign a contract first, <laughs> because you have a project here. <laughs> So, so they, so they immediately, you know, they wanted me to get on board and uh, I had, I mean, I just had sent them one page and on that page they had signed a contract and once I sent the book is when, you know, the real process begins. And so uh, my personal story, I was never willing to trade. I never even thought about it as a, you know, as a worthy project that I know. And also it's, it's the position of the victim of the oppressed who is constantly told you are marketing your own experiences to get uh, uh, one foot inside the door. And as, if you come from an oppressed community, you are, so, uh, uh, you are so trained to not fall into the prejudicial, stereotypical epithets that people uh, hold on or hold against you. And so that's why I, didn't, I never wanted my story to become a point of anchor. I just wanted my quote-unquote intellectual inquiry be the shining light of that space. Um, but, you know, it took, it took me at least three iterations to come to terms with uh, my, my lovely editor, Richa Berman. Uh, you know, she really pushed me hard. And, of course, the associate publisher then, uh, Ranjana Gupta was also, you know, insistent that I do something that this book is coming to. But I was not convinced. <clears throat> and so at Harvard, my colleagues, uh, more especially Nico Miele, uh, my director, uh, he read, I mean, probably he's the only guy who read this book in its two different versions. When, I, when he read the first version, he just came out with a bunch of comments and, you know, he wanted, he was saying similar to what uh, my editors were saying, and I had not shared this information with him. <laughs> so I just wanted to, you know, because they would gag up. And of course, you know, David Maharaj, the former LA Times uh, editor-in-chief, uh, who was a fellow then, he read through and, you know, he kind of gave me an idea of how to disclose information. Now, you have to understand, these people are coming from different vantage points. These people right. are not, in your traditional sense, social science academics. You know, these right. are people who are doing a career in journalism or career in uh, nonfiction writing. And also the concerns I bring to the table uh, were important, uh, uh, and 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 the obvious question was if I if I jargonize it, if I locate it into a certain uh, philosophical tradition, uh, right. would the wider mass be able to appreciate what you have written? Uh, right. And the question then remained: Do you want to write books for library shelves, or do you want to write books for people? And for me, uh, I didn't care either. I just wanted to write because I wanted to write. I didn't wanted uh, the book. To, you know, I, I did not care about uh, the career of the book, uh, you know, and, and I come from a, uh, you know, kind of this thought where 
if you are bright enough, you will shine. And uh, <laughs> then that's how it, uh, it, it, uh, it had its own value to begin with. And so the methodology kind of then, you know, over the period of time, it kind of, and so much of that book was then, you know, I writing it in the last two years of the publishing of the book, you know, kind of lot of revisions, lot of writings. And that's how the methodology, and, 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 and personally, I liked it in the sense that I was able to experiment and innovate with newer methodologies. And also I didn't want it to write a text uh, that will be like a paragon, that will be a citation for next generation scholars. I wanted them to feel free uh, because I'm also trained. My advisor for my PhD, Dilip Menon, uh, was the guy who in fact liberated me from the Euro-American centric uh, paradigms of intellectual projects. He just, you right. know, he just rescued me. And so that in a way I wanted to then, you know, pursue something which is accessible, uh, which is knowledgeable, which is informative and also which is action oriented. Uh, and one could do it very ways. I am glad I could uh, keep my academic tempo alive. The rigor was still there. The reviewers uh, had their own queries and suggestions as every reviewer should have. And also I could satisfy uh, my publisher uh, who, or rather my editor, uh, who wanted this for people to pick up and remember what they read and not just, you know, uh, also it's about, you know, how effective you write doesn't mean you always need to describe a story, but, you know, for example, when Franz Fanon, uh, talks about experiences of blackness, he mentions right. some stories also of Martinique. And, uh, of course, after reading all of that corpus of literature, I still remember some of the stories, anecdotes he shared. Uh, which, right. which certainly had more, you know, values. So I guess uh, for me, it's 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 a it's a newer form of uh, writing experiment uh, that I did, and I like uh, experimenting uh, with new pioneering ideas. Right, right. Uh, that's interesting that you were kind of uh, hesitant about it in the beginning because I think one of the part that's that is one of the aspects of the text that is so. Um, you know, explosive, right? That it it pairs uh, this theory with um, it's 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 such well written experiences that um, that really inform uh, how you how you lay out your theory. And uh, we there's a lot of discussion often about the notion of authenticity, right? And how and I think authenticity is um, I find more and more is best delivered as you know, an experience that is really felt. And um, I, I really, I really see that very clearly um, in this text. Um, so thank you. Thank, um, yeah. Uh, so I just want to talk about um, one of my questions is um, in, in, as you delve into your uh, first chapter, you talk about uh, when you travel, speaking of anecdotes, uh, as you, as you travel abroad uh, to study, uh, you, you made friends and, um, and there's this notion of transnationality and politics, right? And um, you talk about um, how your friends engage with you as it came to uh, Dalit politics. Can you can you discuss a little bit of that and how you delve into it further in your in your text and how that kind of informed how you would, uh, um, you know, um, uh, commit to this this research and this text later on that's a that's a very that's a very good question and i like it uh, because uh, you know the commitment to the text is what also matters right because 
Uh, you know, I've seen many scholars, you know, uh, who, I mean, who write books and they write the books. And for me, it's like, uh, once you finish the book, they move on to the next project. And, and that, that inspires me too. <laughs> you know, it's like, because there, <laughs> yeah. are, there, there is so much you have to do in your life. But when you say a commitment to a text, that really means that's a magnum opus. You know, that's a, that's a literature, uh, that's a text that's going to inspire, that's going to change and hopefully uh, uh, help us uh, humanize our sensibilities. Uh, and in, in that sense, I welcome that question and also that approach. Uh, you see, uh, when, you know, when I wrote this text, I was also very particular on what scholars to cite and what scholars to ignore, you know. And right. I, didn't, I, I didn't do it uh, intentionally, uh, uh, you know, and, and I just, it just came to me naturally that some of the caste concept that I'm describing, uh, it, it, is, it is unsurprising or rather surprising, whichever way one can look at it, that there are not many Euro-American interpretations of Dalit inter, you know, question here, uh, or, you know, or even the Brahmin or dominant caste interpretation of and I think that's one of that's 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 the uh, probably one of the beauty of that book is it it doesn't really uh, essentialize on you know on, on writing into certain disciplinary modes. I wanted to, and this is what I told uh, my editor uh, that uh, of my, my publisher, in fact, that I, I want to write a book that will break the backs of disciplinary hierarchies. Because uh, because my experience cannot be confined to one disciplinary orientation. You know, it cannot be anthropologized. It cannot be socialized. It definitely cannot be interpreted only in cultural or literary studies. There has to be a multiverse, a variance uh, that change as we change the topic, as we change the view, the perspective, as well as the aspiration. And these are all dynamics that cannot literally be explored in one uh, in, in one ivory tower. <laughs> it, it needs to right. change its loyalties. It needs to change its faith-based ascriptions. Uh, uh, it needs more house than one house. It just needs a larger space. And that's why sky and earth is the larger canvas. That's why universality is so central to me. And, 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 and to think about this is to actually locate in transnationality. And transnationality doesn't come as an equation, it just comes as a normalized response. I didn't have to invest. I didn't have to think hard. I even didn't have to work through the available uh, stories, if you will. It was just an occurrence. It's almost like a mathematical formation. One plus one is equal to the two. Right. You know? so, 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 and, and this is what the unique, uniqueness of this project, but also the Dalit community as a whole is. When you engage with the uh, political as well as social praxi of Dalit uh, livelihood, I call the life worlds, what we see in, in this context is uh, the other totemic uh, rationalities that give rise uh, to uh, multiple universalities. And that's why the Dalit universalism sits at that very uh, 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 occasion on the axis uh, to promote a thought of beyond one's limitation because being a Dalit is to be limited, is to be confined, is to be cordoned. Uh, right. But then when you assert your identity, you do everything that is held against you. You don't confine, uh, you don't uh, aspire in limited uh, vocations, 
you actually think outside, you think beyond. Because what is the oppressed person think beyond the shackles? Because that's what they always aspire to. Whereas the oppressor will always only think about those squares that he or she or they have put us into. Because that's the world they want to live in. Whereas right. the oppressed doesn't want to live. As oppressed wants to break that and think about what's available in the rest of the world. And that's why you will also notice the early indentured migration, Dalits volunteered to go right. and become indentured because they wanted to explore the world. Also, they want to get rid of uh, the squared or the, uh, uh, or the, or the uh, feudal plantation sites owned by the dominant caste in the native country in India. Right. Uh, I was going to ask something else, but since you brought it up, you in um, in one of your chapters, you bring up these the the sheer multiplicity, right, of Dalit identity, um, and that was that informed uh, such a large portion of your text, right? And you you delve into not just oh this exists, but the various characteristics of you know these multiple these multiple characters, and also like how that. Um, how that informs their worldview, how that informs how they act, right? And how, they, mm-hmm. how that informs how they um, uh, kind of um, interact with their own Dalit community, right? And so how does, my question is, how, does, how do you factor feminism in there? Because it, it is like intrinsically located in, in the theory there. And I just want, I just want to, I just would love to hear you discuss how it factors in there. I'm so glad you could find the remnants of that in that. That's, that's, that was the purpose as well. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, the, the, the feminine, even before we become the feminist, the feminine aspect of caste is the originality of caste system. Uh, right. Because the suppression of a bodily fluid, the control on desire and sexuality is the uh, definition of caste system. And, and, and when, we, when we try to locate uh, the femininity and eventually the feminist argument against the caste, the femininity has to be uh, the leading uh, uh, item that could attack or rather tool, if you will, uh, in the words of uh, Audre Lorde, uh, that would definitely dismantle uh, the, the oppressor. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, I just wanted to use master simply because we are living <laughs> in a new time where, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where, where I'd, I'd, I'd rather never call, you know. Uh, but in, 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 in this context, Preeti, uh, the Dalit project is actually a feminist project. And when I say feminist project, I don't want to genderize because, of course, gender also is a problematic term. Yes. Uh, there, is, there is an entirety of how one locates one's femininity in establishing an anti-caste critique. And the Dalit leaders, uh, who were obviously the women we know are mostly male, but also there are significant females. But the gender identity for Dalit male was not necessarily the male that we usually identify with or identified. Uh, the Dalit male is a character that is very much rooted in the anti-caste feminist thinking. And this Dalit male character, that's why aspires to become uh, the, 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 the Dalit feminine uh, 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 object, uh, uh, an object of interpretation, where then they would use the same canon to dismantle the caste system. Because if you have to destroy a caste system, you have no option but destroy the patriarchy and the sensibilities that it brings with it. It'd be homophobia, transphobia, and other forms of 
uh, sexuality-based phobias that is trying to heteronormatize uh, uh, the uh, fundamental ethic of caste system, which is basically to have a reproduction-based mechanism. And right. it, is in, it, is, it is in this logic, uh, my book actually starts with uh, the woman in my life. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, 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 and any reader who would read will follow the chart of thoughts, right? Once I have placed that, uh, the, that's a hint for you to read the rest of the text. Be it my grandma, be it my mother, these are the people who fantastically uh, lay the ideological uh, grooming for the next heavy-handed thoughts that I bring to the table. One should never lose the focus when I talk about grand ideas, that these ideas originate from the nucleus where I draw my legitimacy from. Right. That was so uh, apparent how you, how you kind of set the scene with that. And now uh, my favorite question and my favorite part of the text by far uh, was uh, your discussion of love right? Uh, it, it just informed such a great part of your text. Um, you talk a lot about love and specifically Dalit love, which um, I think, you know, this, this idea of radical love as a juxtacondition, can you, can, you just, can you just elaborate upon that a bit? I mean, there is, there are, there is a possibility of juxtapositioning and, and the positioning is often uh, voluntary. You know, one can position. Uh, but I had, to, I had to think about the conditions that give rise uh, to the original. And the original could be anything, idea, human, uh, perspective, whatnot. And that's why I, 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 I chart out the juxta conditions where Dalits live in, in two polar uh, uh, axioms. One is uh, the uh, possibilities. There are endless possibilities and possibilities of anything, possibilities of many things. And, 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 and it's, just, it's just an unseen. It's just the worship of the Almighty. It's just the faith in something that would happen, something good would happen. My mother lived as a, you know, a, a, a below poverty line in India. And all she could do was have a faith in the possibility of the unseen, of what's going to happen next. She didn't know her child is going to get to uh, Harvard, going to get you know, degrees and, you know, she just had that faith in the possibility. She didn't know what that possibility will look like, but, but that sheer courage to have a possibility as something you can own is, is profound. One has to really realize these are the people who were two generations ago slaves, who were about a generation ago illegitimately uh, put under the cordons of caste system in their villages. Within a generation, these people are endlessly thinking about the cosmic possibilities of what is possible. And it's not only material, but it's also spiritual. And spiritualism is then a condition to their philosophical development of how they then inherit those qualities into their children. And so I basically am the carrier of that thought for so many generations that my ancestor thought. That is a possibility one, but the second is there is a deep pain as well. Then let's undergo traumas, atrocities. They go repeated uh, uh, memories of pain, um, and 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 there are there are uh, uh, there are uh, uh, facilities uh, that the casteist order has provided them. 
to remind them of their pain. Uh, one can have a, uh, 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 an ankle broken and you might forget about it if you can forget and you will not remember about that pain. But for us, every direction we turn, we are reminded of our pain. And so that pain is just not a pain on surface, but that pain is deep rooted. It's inside your heart, it's inside your body. It operates like the blood right. flowing through your, through your vein. And, and, and that's why um, the idea of uh, this deep pain is also a movement of possibilities. Because through that pain, what you see is you generate a response which then, which then creates a belief where you have to now solve this with the idea of love. Because loving the unloved is what the Dalit community has taught the world. You love the already loved one. Parents loving their children is a love that you will love. Parents or siblings loving each other is a love. But how about loving someone who has been unloved? And that unloved could be anybody. And that unloved is what we created. It is not that the person is physically or mentally unlovable. We have made a that person, that condition, an unloved uh, situation. And I think that's why what we think, what I argue in this is uh, the unloved belongs to an underappreciated and unrecognized segment right. who is deriving the suffering of humanity. That's a, that's a big thing. We are representing the suffering of humanity as a whole. And it, it, is, it, is, it is in this pursuit we hope to guide and hold on to our ancestral values of how to love. And that's why I, I, I say it is a, it, uh, the, the possibility of Dalit love, as I describe it, it creates the belief on how to survive. The recipe of resilience for the Dalit community, because you all should know, Dalits are the oldest survivors known to this earth. We have been kept untouchables. Caste system has changed. It has taken its various forms. But the condition of untouchables didn't matter to anybody, whoever, whatever religious tradition they came from, because as much as it hoped to offer a hope to this, there were many traditions uh, who were eventually co-opted and yet we were went, sent back right to our position. So we remain the oldest surviving uh, discriminated community and yet manage to think high of the world and think about the possibilities. And I think it is here uh, where I, I, I talk about how then we live a model of living a life, which is to create and recreate the animating aspect of belief in each other through the principle of love. Yeah, I thought that that was profound. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, that's all I'm going to say about that because people should read, people should read how you uh, elaborate on it. Um, you also discuss humor uh, as a subversive, um, as, a, as a means of um, subversive, you know, um, particularly uh, with reference to uh, uh, the Brahmin, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and you talk about kind of colloquialisms and uh, you kind of translate some of them. Can, can you elaborate? Can you just like elaborate upon that a little bit and, and, and discuss how the Brahmin is referenced in that regard? Brahmin is a joke for us. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a butt of pittance. Uh, we, uh, we, in fact, uh, whenever we grew up, <laughs> uh, our jokes were centralizing 
the Brahmin as a foolish subject, as someone stupid, senile, someone who doesn't really can't think beyond his pot-bellied uh, figurine and the thread he's trying to sport uh, to to gain more space. You know that was for us ridiculous. Like you can't really, you know. And the Brahmin was an ugly uh, a figure uh, because that's how that's how we saw also, <laughs> you know. And uh, and that's why. Uh, uh, our jokes were also surrounded around a, a, a character which was then a, this Brahmin, this mythical Brahmin, or, or sometimes it would also be a Baniya, the, the shopkeeper who is trying to uh, uh, con us and you know trying to exploit us by his treacherous uh, you know uh, uh, trading uh, uh, policies. So th- these were like the the characters that always we made fun of. We made fun of their thread. We, we even we now we say. Uh, you know, uh, like that thread is, uh, is is. I mean, it turns dark when the when they wear it. It doesn't take a week for it to turn to a different color. That that's how much the thread is also tired of this a stinking body that is wreaking a uh, 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 hatred for us. So so the so the uh, uh, the uh, fight, at least on an intellectual level, was not always the Brahmins controlling the narrative. We also had our own narratives. It's just that. Mm. Uh, it was never it was never human humanized mm. it was never it was never theorized uh, it was never given an attention and so humor is one way where we actually laugh uh, uh, at other uh, but also laugh with others you know mm. and, and that's that's a very uh, fundamental uh, difference of how we uh, how we how we elate a certain egoistic uh, you know uh, uh, pleasures but, but then you know we know also so one of the things is if you go in Dalit community, you will see humor has a premium. The right. Dalits know how to laugh. Just spend some time <laughs> with them. They will find all kinds of reasons, all kinds of uh, jocular expressions, all kinds of small things. Sometimes it's mimicry or sometimes it's just, it's just on some citational references or, or running something because they just know how to, and they, they laugh loud. <laughs> they laugh for the world. <laughs> So when they are laughing, the world knows that someone is celebrating or someone is having that moment uh, that they, they think can be celebrated uh, and, and can be relaxed for, for that while. Um, and, and I think in this humorous capacity, I, I, I definitely, you know, uh, kind of there are various ways of how do we have comedic uh, values attached to a human survival. Uh, because if we forget to laugh, uh, we also forget to cry, and crying and laughing are two one of the most important uh, values uh, that we can live up to. Because many times uh, we uh, forget to cry or we forget to laugh, and and I think that has to do with the depressive state um, of the condition of the person who is put into that. Uh, however, uh, for Dalits, for us, uh, this is a, a a beautifying value. This is a, 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 a kind of crown that we carry very proudly on each other. If we know how to cry, you also know, we know how to laugh as well. And you damn will know when we laugh. And so um, our jokes are, for example, uh, if anybody farted, you know, mm. as kids. And, and so, you know, as, as a group, if anybody farted, so we would be like, who is, who is the culprit, right? Mm-hmm. So, but not the culprit, who is the Brahmin culprit? Mm. That was how we identified because we saw Brahmins eating all the peas and the undigestive snacks because <laughs> they are vegetarian uh, habitual 
uh, you know, palate would not uh, invite them to eat some healthy protein of beef uh, and, and other flesh, uh, which then, of course, uh, you know, then obviously the Brahmin farts and, you know, we all, we all saw also this. And so that's why when we identified a Brahmin with a stinky Brahmin or, or a Brahmin who really uh, is a, a Brahmin who really smells bad, because we saw that as well. And, and, and I think that was one of the way we countered. That was our protest. That was our challenge to the, to the mighty uh, prowess of a Brahmin hegemony that we have amidst us. And, and, and this is, by the way, available uh, in almost every other Dalit Bastis where we have such kind of uh, uh, interlocutions of, of our own, you know, uh, expressions of, of, of jokes. Um, you know, one, 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 one very essential aspect of this is, uh, you know, it was a liberating exercise. Mm. It was elevating everybody's agency in that laughter. So when we laughed at, we wanted us to be liberated for that moment. Uh, we wanted right. us to feel high. We wanted us to uh, be a, in the skies and in the moments where we lose ourselves for even that moment. You know, just think about yourself. The last time you laughed out hard, Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, the thoughts were not there. I mean, once you got into that moment of extreme laughter for that microseconds or few seconds, you were in a different state of mind. And I think that is the kind of uh, reserve that we would like to, uh, you know, maintain and, and, and present to us. And, and that's why many vernacular jokes are also, uh, you know, around uh, how, we, how, we, how we have humor. But unfortunately, that Dalit humor is not appreciated. People don't know about that. People don't even you know, a dare to think about that. And uh, I guess I had to write about this in, in, a, in a form uh, that people, you know, could at least understand. Once I wrote this, you know, many people from other regions, Telugu, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Kannada, uh, they wrote to me and say, you know what, we also have similar in our languages as well. So <laughs> there is a lot. <laughs> we would like to create a Dalit humor uh, dictionary. Ah, I'd like to see that. Um... I think that's interesting. Like, also, who who has uh, who has um, access to this notion of theory? Who has uh, who has visibility? Right. Um, even though this idea of humor exists in other places, where is it visible? Um, and and you you made this one shade, this this one aspect, uh, very visible. Um, uh, and I think it also has to do with the precarity of uh, human life. Also, um, uh, so. Uh, you, one of the things that you describe a lot is uh, the view of that people have of Ambedkar, right? And I think um, um, Ambedkar's philosophy informs a lot of people's, um, you know, uh, how they view caste, casteism um, in India, and, and uh, policy also, right? Um, how do you how do you kind of interrogate how people view Ambedkar in your in your book? How do you interrogate um, how they um, analyze Ambedkar? I mean, you know, Ambedkar is now become almost in the past few years, one can count, has become a star intellectual uh, for the world. Right. But uh, for us, he has always been, right? It's, it's the discovery of the elite class who wants to now reclaim Ambedkar, who wants to now, you know, hold on to Ambedkar because everything else has been uh, uh, almost become futile. Every other political leader that you have right now, the nation celebrates. People don't celebrate. You know, nation celebrating is basically the state sponsoring that. 
and you know that's why ambedkar is almost like the blue eyed boy for uh, everybody and that's one of the concerns also for us because uh, what they could do is to uh, misappropriate or only selectively uh, misinterpret his cause which is very radical very anti brahminical anti caste and you know he would not uh, he would not sit well with the people who want to hold on to the values and the uh, uh, the context that put his people back to the square one which is the lowest caste position so that is very clear in his project and for that ambedkar has methods he has a, a step by step guide and one is of course from his life and second he has written that by himself and and it is in this uh, quest of finding ambedkar uh, as opposed to uh, discovering ambedkar one really has missed out on many aspects so so we would like to you know and that's why um i have i have i have uh, i've tried to and you know in my next book potentially if i uh, if i get quick if i get good time to work on it will be i mean it, i've signed a contract uh, early this year on writing the biography of ambedkar uh, oh, that wow. will be that will be the first dalit written english biography of ambedkar oh wow okay yeah sadly enough it's quite late <laughs> yeah but someone had to do it yeah wonderful um i have one one last question and then um we can talk about what you, uh more things that you're doing next you already gave us a um kind of a a sneak peek but uh you kind of describe the middle class as undemocratic right and and you and you delve into this discussion about the dalit middle class so how does that impact the status quo and if if you want to discuss if you want to uh go into this how is this related to politics today right how do the needs of the dalit people need to be addressed politically um you know i i talk about uh the undemocratic nature of the uh, middle class especially uh that is fixated into the caste based uh, uh social order which is hierarchical in nature so if it's already hierarchical uh then it there is no democracy there and the indian middle class then is part of that because indian middle class is outcome of this uh, indian social order which is indian brahminical order and and that's why uh, uh when we appreciate the uh, the class aspect of indian society we have to look at it as already an undemocratic uh, force to which is working uh, much in action and very much actually full time to retain the status now within that a very tiny minority yet you know and I, and I also write in that book is there there is quite a significant uh, uh, you know uh, influential class among dalits that has is emerging or also you know especially post neoliberalization uh, process where what we had a, 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 a a kind of a state sponsored middle class that's mostly a service oriented class which is which is not uh, which is basically in a very precarious position uh, they they want their kids to go to oxford cambridge harvard uh, there is and 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 yet also uh, they have immense responsibilities so they try their best to negotiate these two responsibilities now, but also many times they try to ascribe to the middle class values <laughs> which which i which i say you know that's never been your case mm. uh, you you cannot become a total indian middle class because indian middle class has a caste order 
and you will never get into that caste uh, rank uh, to be recognized as somebody. And, and so, and so that is how I was trying to, you know, uh, you know, I tried to argue in this paper, uh, in this chapter, especially as to how uh, the middle class sensibilities, uh, you know, uh, is 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 kind of uh, is is. It's, I have a hope for they will contribute to the liberation, and that's why uh, it it kind of takes a critical take on the middle class politics. But also, you can see, I don't. I talk about the middle class. Through the global experiences, right? right. Uh, the, the the American middle class, as well as the the you know, and of course the Indian middle class has been the uh, 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 Indian middle class runs the country uh, in in its in its political electoral form, if right. you will, because it's one of the most influential. It's it's it it votes, it influences the opinions, it controls the opinions, and so the so the middle class logic of India, and of course we don't know what middle class. There is no set definition, by the way. Right. Uh, the McKenzie talks one. The Indian government doesn't have a specific uh, variation on who to identify middle class, and then there are various experts, mostly economic, uh, uh, you know, uh, fiscal economists, who try to define. Uh, but but middle class is, as as it is said, it's a sensibility, is how you think also. You know, it's a consciousness, and in that sense, uh, I I really hope, uh, you know, like the the the, the middle class wannabe uh, will always remain wannabe. If they don't challenge the status quo that they feel they will have one day opportunity to climb, you know that's the hope of capitalist order. It's more especially the neoliberal uh, dichotomy that it it wants to maintain uh, the the system, but at the same time it offers the hope which is never going to be possible. I mean, you cannot become a a, a Rockefeller uh, or you cannot become a Carnegie Mellon uh, by just sharing the stories of it. You know, you really come from an order. That is 24/7 invested in maintaining your caste status. So how are you still going to, you know, aspire to that? So there has to be new innovations to how then you will uh, define uh, your own existence up, uh, in in your caste as well as class order. And maybe then there are options. So that's why in that nature I, I refer to the undemocratic character of the Indian middle class, where I don't want Dalits to then enter into that undemocratic uh, charter right. and then then become, you know, um, more problem. Uh, kind of a, a growing problem for the community also. Right, absolutely. Um, so you you did mention that you're writing, you, you're endeavoring to write um, the biography of Ambedkar. Um, what what else are you working on next? I know you, um, you're men, I know that you're working on such a such a wide, a diverse range of things. Can you can you share some of that with the, with our audience? Sure. Um, as I said, I signed the book contract. And we are hoping uh, one of the, the way the uh, the, uh, the commissioning editor pitched me this idea of Ambedkar biography is to uh, you know then get Netflix uh, interested oh, in this. And, wow! So they can, okay. So they can make a you know. So I am writing in in, in that fashion and and you know, and Ambedkar uh-huh. is my God. He he is oh you know I mean you know I mean it will take you. I mean he he is so complex and. And, and and another interesting thing is there is so much written on him <laughs> that uh, yeah. that it, even for me to uh, go to his references, I had to limit myself to two books because there was <laughs> just but and still I had to refer to three books, you know, even writing his early part of his life. And, you know, I mean, I've written more or less 40 percentage of the book now, okay. uh, but uh, uh, but now his his actual life starts, which is political life 1920 onwards. 
and and so and so now you know he is writing his PhDs, he's giving memorandums, he's writing speeches, he's writing editorials, he's running movements, uh, he's also being a lawyer, he's fighting cases of important values, he's fighting the case of or in the case of prostitution or sexuality, you know, he's, he's also uh, you know, fighting the cases. I mean, he's, he's a lawyer, but also he's a father, he's a husband, uh, and then he's, he's, he's helping establish new democratic framework for India by negotiating with the British that don't trust this dominant caste Brahmins and Baniyas, the Nehru's and Gandhi's of Congress, because these people are the new colonizers for us, one master going, other coming. So, so, so there is so much, and he spent much of his time in London. I mean, the international deliberations. So, so I have to. So that is one book that I am currently writing. The second book, um, which is under review right now, I'm writing with Professor Kevin Brown a book on what we call caste and race uh, remix, uh, where we are trying to bring out the African American uh, uh, connection with the Dalit. So far, it was African American connection with the Indian. Freedom Movement and Howard Thurman, uh, uh, Du Bois, Martin Luther King Jr., even Malcolm X, all were uh, you know smitten by the uh, the Indian Nationalist Movement because also it was uh, India was the largest anti-colonial uh, colon, uh, you know, nation that was leading the battle on certain values and ethics. Uh, so we are now revisiting that uh, uh, through more specifically putting a primary lens on African American and Dalit part of. You know that 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 equation, the Dalit and uh, the the character of African American, uh, and and we we have uh, we also have almost you know that's that work is under progress. It's an academic work, as you know, it's a collaboration work. So, uh, but but we are happy. You know, we are kind of trying to bring in that book uh, some of the shortcomings and some of the deficiencies of some of the leadership's oversight over this important aspect of you know. It's also a way to correct some of the history uh, right. which is which, which was not informed to the african american public but also you know un, you know unsurprisingly uh, many african americans knew about ambedkar knew about untouchable in fact not many in fact the concern was on untouchability even mlk when he appreciated gandhi he appreciated gandhi's image to wipe off untouchability and mm -hmm. he thought that because of course that was what was propagated in the newspaper so we have so much of archive uh, that we are going through old newspapers and you know that's i've been doing that for the past five years now and and now it has come to this stage uh the third book i'm working on which i just started uh, uh writing my you know uh, like think about the lit review right now is is the Dalit black worlds i'm thinking about four or major five major thinkers du bois ambedkar fenor uh, martin luther king and steve biko in south africa to think about uh, you know how the Dalit and Black uh, world uh, thought, the intellectual cartography, uh, is going to be framed, and and how it is going to be helpful for our next generation. I want to you know uh, provide a guidance text for this international intersectional work that is only going to guru book from now. Uh, so these are uh, three books that are that are on my table, and simultaneously uh, I am. You know, I'm hopefully going to edit a series with Oxford University Press. Uh, I'm hoping to get 10 Dalit scholars from South Asia uh, published uh, on their, you know, amazing academic uh, work. Uh, and and uh, that, that would also take some, 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 some time. So these are some uh, very immediate wow. projects on hand, yeah. That's a lot of immediate books. <laughs> 
I know you I, might you might get it like oh wow he just published one book last year and another one this year no the work is happening. <laughs> Uh, there's, uh, there, there's sure, there's, uh, I know there's other things that you're working on, right? Uh, you, you mentioned, um, regarding, uh, Dalit film literature that, um, that you're also, um, mm -hmm. curating. Mm -hmm. So, uh, as you might know, we curated the first Dalit film festival last year in New York, uh, massive success of three days, uh, we pulled it off. Um, and so now people are asking for the second installment um, and uh, because of COVID uh, and other issues, you know, we just thought to wait. We wanted to do it uh, uh, once in two years uh, just because it takes, you know, so much logistics right. and, and, it's, and, and it's surprising that so many entries we still get. We haven't even opened the call, but people keep sending the new filmmakers, keep sending their amazing work uh, to, to us. Uh, and, and so that's uh, that we hope to, you know, now we are looking for a location. Uh, we would like to make it more international and not one location. So uh, a team from Vancouver, uh, Ambedkarites have, uh, you, know, were, you know, proposed their venue uh, to organize a festival of such nature. And uh, in the meanwhile, I am right now working on uh, uh, organizing international Dalit Literary Festival. Uh, and because you know the Dalit literature is a very uh, vast, large canvas, uh, which is written even in fact, you know, even uh, there are so many uh, local uh, or rather regional languages so rich in its content. Uh, and, and, and of that, the Dalit story is again enriching uh, that, uh, uh, you know, these are the people whose amazing literature actually it 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 really is a soul mirror for a humanity to 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 meditate once you read uh, one of these books by the Dalit authors. So I want to, uh, you know, I'm to organize a you know literary festival inviting poets, writers, columnists, uh, people who scribe on the Dalit issues and give attention to Dalits uh, who have never been appreciated for their you know internationally at least for their human service to literature and. Uh, uh, for that, you know, we are still scouting the venue, and uh, um, I'm hopeful that I get a venue. Uh, you know, this time, you know, the people in London have have expressed their interest in in, in hosting uh, this uh, festival. So once that happens, you will uh, surely know, and I invite you and also your uh, listeners to come once that is finalized. That sounds wonderful. Can't wait to see all of your new work. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me uh, today, uh, Suraj. Um, again, my name is Preeti Ramaprasad. This is a New Books Network for South Asian Studies. Um, and today we talked to Dr. Suraj Yangde and his book, Cast Matters. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>